you know, over and over through the years when uh, we've had a big power outage and I have to tell somebody that an animal was the cause of the outage, it's always difficult to tell a reporter that. I've even had reporters hold the phone up to the newsroom and say, hey, guess what caused the outage? And especially when it's a squirrel, that's even funnier to them. So yes, animal outages are my most hated uh, response. You're listening to Buff Speak, the official podcast of the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. I am Dr. Nick Gerlich, your host, as we meet up with the thought leaders making an impact today. The Texas Panhandle is renowned for its highly unpredictable and extremely variable weather. It's normal to have to keep your parka and flip-flops side-by-side through the year because you can often use both, especially during winter, and then there's the wind. Depending on whose list you are using, Amarillo often comes out at the top of the windiest cities in the U.S. with a 24-hour average of 13.6 miles an hour. That wind, plus the prospect of ice, snow, and hail, keep the local power company on call much of the year, ready to drive throughout a region bigger than the entire state of West Virginia just to fix downed power lines. But that very same wind is also now an important component in the local economy, with wind energy companies harnessing that endless supply of free natural resources. The result has been the growing role of renewables, not just used locally, but also exported downstate. Our guest today is Wes Reeves, Senior Media Relations Representative for XL Energy in Amarillo. XL, based in Minneapolis, Minnesota, provides electricity in parts of eight states, and Wes is the face and the voice of the power company here whenever public appearances need to be made. And whenever anything becomes a utility, like electricity, people expect it to be available all the time, without interruption. Wes, what's it like being on the hot seat for something you cannot control, yet people want answers anyway? Well, it's definitely a challenge. Uh, my wife always accuses me of being a fixer, and I want to fix things. I want to I make it right for people, and sometimes it's just not right. Uh, so what I've learned over the years is just to be open and honest and keep the information flowing, and people are usually pretty understanding about that. The state of Texas wound up on the national news in February 2021 thanks to an epic cold wave and power outages that affected the vast majority of the state. And while it was ridiculously cold here, we escaped the brunt of the power problems thanks to the fact that we are not on the ERCOT grid. ERCOT, or Electric Reliability Council of Texas, covers about 90% of Texans, and as we all know now, was far from reliable. How is it that the Emerald area is not on ERCOT, and why did we not suffer the same fate as the rest of the state? I always remind folks about our geography here, and we're a long ways from anywhere. So ERCOT developed uh, really amongst the cities uh, in the populated parts of Texas. Uh, a lot of that goes back as far as World War II when there were a lot of defense plants in that part of the state, and they began to uh, tie in each other's systems to make sure there was reliability. So really, I think it's geography. We just were too far away from that part of the power grid. We were sort of our own island here for many years uh, in the Panhandle and South Plains, and so we began to connect more toward, uh, na- more toward the east with our neighbors in Oklahoma, a little bit up north, uh, it just made more sense uh, that we were connected that direction. So, uh, so that answers that question to the best I can. Uh, it just it just sort of happened that way. So it was pure serendipity, wasn't it? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, the other thing that's kept us from joining, we are because we do cross state lines. So we are regulated not only by the state of Texas but by the federal government as well because we're interstate commerce. Whereas ERCOT is entirely within the state of Texas. They don't have federal oversight to that degree. Now, there is some federal oversight, but not in the way we're regulated. They want to keep it that way. So that's kind of that uh, Texas knows better, you know, type of attitude. However, for us, it's been not an issue at all. It's actually been a benefit for us to be uh, connected across state lines and, of course, have that federal oversight. It has not been an issue for us. I'm confident I won't forget February 2021 anytime soon, but not because of power outages, but rather just the extreme cold. Um, I recall being warned by the power company, you, that there would be some rolling brownouts one particular day, and 
I think I had no power for about 30 minutes, and that was it. I had the fireplace going, everything was fine. But what was really interesting was all the people I know around the country sending me messages on social media, are you okay? You know, because they heard about Texas, they just didn't realize that our part of Texas was getting along just fine. Exactly. You know, and we are part of what's called the Southwest Power Pool. Uh, that call for, uh, as we call them, controlled outages actually came from the authority that oversees the Southwest Power Pool. Technically, in our region, we were still in pretty good shape, but because we share resources with these other nearby states, uh, they started to dip into their reserves, and that's really when that happened. We never really ran out of power, uh, but it did happen that particular Tuesday uh, that I remember. But as you said, they were fairly short in duration, and by lunchtime we had gone back to a fairly normal situation. The very first one-megawatt wind turbine in the U.S. was installed in 1941 in Vermont, but it took quite a few decades for the idea to catch on. Today, no trip across Texas is complete without seeing hundreds, maybe thousands, of the 15,000 turbines that now dot the landscape. Yet those same turbines were not able to keep up with electricity needs February a year ago because they had not been properly winterized. Can you explain? Uh, For sure, winterization was a problem for all power generation uh, in the downstate region. So it wasn't just the wind turbines in that part of the state. Uh, it was the uh, the coal and natural gas and even nuclear plants were suffering from some of that same issue. We have uh, a lot of wind turbines in this region that were actually operating and operable during that time. Our biggest problem was the beginning of that weather pattern, there wasn't a lot of wind. Uh, so when when uh, what, what really got us in, an, in, a, in, a, in a bad spot was the natural gas supplies were freezing up in the lines and not making it to our region for the gas-fired plants. At the same time, the wind was very minimal. Uh, Within a couple of days, the wind picked up and we got a lot of wind energy for this region during that time. But uh, we we do build our plants and our wind turbines a little different in this part of the world because we know we can go below zero, even though it doesn't happen every year. So there are some uh, winterization uh, uh, packages that go along with that that helped us during that time. But primarily for us, it was a lack of wind in general at the beginning of that weather. And then we suffered through another significant cold blast this February as well, although it wasn't quite as bad. Uh, thankfully, there were no service issues this time, and, and I've read that this time around, wind energy in Texas accounted for 30% of the power being generated at that time. How and why was this year different from the year prior? Uh, you know, for us in this region, uh, we were actually seeing uh, even more than 30% on some of those days uh, of wind on our system. Uh, really, we had better wind more than anything else. We didn't have any uh, ice with that storm that could have caused uh, freezing on the blades. And so, I, it just in my opinion, my uh, unexpert opinion is that we didn't have ice, uh, a significant amount of ice, and uh, we had a fairly good steady wind during that time. And I assume that that's probably what was happening in West Texas, where most of ERCOT's wind energy is coming from. The Texas panhandle is blessed, or some might say cursed, with a steady breeze. And then sometimes it gets windier. What is the maximum wind speed these turbines can sustain? You know, it really kind of depends on the make of the turbine. Uh, So I'm just kind of throwing out some generalities. But I know if you get into the, say, mid 40 mile an hour range or a little higher, we start to begin uh, shutting uh, our turbines down at that point, or they kind of shut themselves down because they're actually little mini met towers as, as uh, on their own, and so they're they're measuring the wind. So you have a top end, but you also have a low end. So it's not going to pick up and begin to produce until you get around seven or eight seven or eight miles per hour. So it's within that range is where your sweet spot is. But uh, I know if we're hitting fifty mile an hour days where it's sustained, we're probably not going to make a lot of wind energy that day because it's. At those higher uh, levels, it's it can be very dangerous for the equipment. So the kinds of winds that we have experienced in spring of 2022, um, a lot of those were beyond beneficial. Exactly. Now, we would get some, uh, say, on those really windy days. It would pick up pretty good that morning, and by the afternoon, it would be uh, better to turn the turbines off. So we were getting some good production, but we couldn't take full advantage of that. 
It is now possible to drive I-40 across the Texas Panhandle and rarely be out of sight of a blinking red light at night. We have wind farms flanking both sides of Amarillo, with the Will Dorado Wind Ranch west of town boasting 70 Siemens turbines rated at 2.3 megawatts apiece. What are Excel's goals for renewables in this area, and what percentage of our electricity needs can you produce in the panhandle strictly from wind? Well, if we're looking ahead uh, in the greater good and the bigger picture, we're really looking at reducing carbon emissions. So that's the ultimate goal. Renewables, of course, being the, one of the main ways you get there, but there are other ways to be carbon-free as well. Uh, so we're looking uh, for this region and all of Xcel Energy uh, to reducing our carbon emissions by 80% by 2030. By 2050, we have a vision that we would produce what's considered to be carbon-free electricity. Uh, so that's kind of a sort of an answer to your question. We don't know exactly how many more renewables we'll need. We just know we'll probably need more to get there. Uh, to put it in some, some perspective, we're now about roughly 40% carbon-free uh, generation for this region, for Texas and New Mexico, in a year. Is that looking over 12 months? Of that, 30-something percent, obviously, is wind because we don't have a lot of uh, solar on our system at this point. Uh, so it's hard to say, you know, can you get to 100% with just with renewables? You could, in theory, if you have storage systems. And we don't really have storage systems out there now. Now, they are uh, available, but you have to have something that the customers can afford. Uh, and so we, we have to kind of hit that magic spot, sweet spot of affordability before we'll start seeing large batteries put onto the system. And you mentioned solar. Is solar going to play an increasing role out here? Because I couldn't tell you the last time I saw a solar farm anywhere near. There's beginning to be a lot of interest in solar in Texas. Now, the solar we have coming onto our system is, is usually coming out of New Mexico. Uh, they were a little bit ahead of the game there. They had some uh, incentives that, that you don't have available in Texas. Uh, but we are seeing definitely a lot of uh, desire to put solar in, and we're looking at it in the Texas panhandle. We don't have anything in specifically. But, you know, one interesting thing is we have some of these older power plant sites uh, that uh, the plants are being retired. Well, we've got all this real estate there, and they're already connected to the grid. So we're able to keep that connection open and hopefully go back in with some solar. So I think you'll begin to see solar plants develop around some of our older power plant sites. Well, it, it makes perfect sense because um, this is actually not very well known in this area, but Amarillo is tied for 16th sunniest city in the U.S. We for get sure. We get about 73% of available sunlight, more than what they get in the vast majority of that place they call the Sunshine State, otherwise known as Florida. You're right. Florida, they, they just have good marketers it working for them. It rains there a lot, right? So That's there, right. So rain here. So we've got lots of sunny skies. And, and, and you see the solar develops. You know, we're part of the larger company that's based in Minneapolis. They have a lot of solar in Minnesota. Well, you don't think of Minnesota as being necessarily an overly sunny place, but they're able to make it work. So there's a lot of availability, a lot of potential for solar in this region. How does solar uh, stand up to our hailstorms? I have not seen it be a problem, uh, just anecdotally. I mean, there are some solar panels here. I think the, uh, the manufacturers understand where they're going to be putting these, these facilities are out in the middle of uh, nowhere sometimes and uh, exposed to all kinds of elements. Uh, definitely, I'm sure there have been panels that have cracked by hail. But when you think about it, even at our homes here, I mean, when's the last time you had a window broken in your house from hail? It has... I mean, I've been here 30 years, and that's never happened. So it, it has happened to other people, I realize. Uh, but it's not that big of an issue, really. Yeah. Hail targets roofs and cars, right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and they're pretty. these solar panels are pretty tough. They can handle it. Texas leads the nation in terms of turbines and electricity generated by renewables. But because our population is pushing 30 million, our percentage of total electricity needs produced by these turbines falls below that of less populated states like Iowa. Still, we are currently at about 20% statewide renewables. How high do you think that can go, even though the bulk of this is outside your service area? You know, it's really hard to say about, about ERCOT, but I would think uh, very much possible pushing 50 or 60% renewables 
uh, in the next decade or so based on the technologies we have. And that's just me talking. I'm not necessarily an expert, but uh, once you get more of the storage onto the system, uh, you're going to see. Plus, you think about the pie, the, the fossil fuel part of the pie is shrinking, too. So that only makes this part bigger. Uh, but definitely we're going to see something that would have to keep uh, the reliability of the system in play. And, and so you have to have something spinning all the time in order to keep the, the grid up. Uh, so there have to be some other investments and uh, uh, technologies that, that support the grid, support the voltage on the grid. And, you know, there's a lot of different things you can do. It's all possible. Uh, but I think for Texas, we could for sure do better than 20%. It's uh, kind of hard to escape the fact that EVs or electric vehicles are in the news just about every day. Um, our president has made it part of his policy that he would like to see 50% of all new vehicle sales by 2030 be electric. Uh, right now, we're only at about 3%. This is actually a point that critics of EVs like to toss around, that the grid might not be able to handle all those electric vehicles. Well, and, you know, uh, if you plugged everything in tomorrow, if everybody had to switch to a, an electric vehicle tomorrow, that might be true. But when you think about how these things develop, uh, we've got time and we've got the ability to phase in the infrastructure needed uh, as, as people adopt EVs. And so Xcel Energy has a vision uh, outside of our carbon vision, we're looking at, at having at least 30% of the vehicles within our, our eight-state footprint be electric by 2030. So that's uh, eight years away. So that definitely there is uh, some uh, ability. We, we, our experts know we can get there or we wouldn't be making visionary claims like that. So uh, it's definitely going to happen. We can phase this in, uh, and, and the power companies will play a big role in this. The infrastructure primarily is just how do you plug in at your house. Uh, so in New Mexico, currently, we are offering uh, some incentives and some programs and some special rates to put in home charging at your house. We're not able to do that in Texas yet. But uh, the short answer to that, uh, to that is we will be able to do it. It's not all going to happen at one time. We can work these things in as we continue. And we're always rebuilding the system every year, basically. So it's, it's not a static thing. It doesn't always stay the same. Naturally, there are people opposed to wind energy. They cite things like birds killed by the rotating turbine blades. And this amounts to about 234,000 bird deaths each year. But they overlook the fact that cats kill 2.4 billion birds alone each year. And many more simply fly into my living room window. <laughs> I've heard that, too. And then there are others who simply just don't like the look of the turbines, calling them a blight upon our landscape. How do you speak to such opposition? Well, you, you said it the best there uh, when you consider the fact that house cats eat more birds than, than wind turbines do. There's always a—I mean, when you hear criticisms of something, you got to understand people are just looking at one little sliver of the truth. If you look at the big picture, oh, that's not that big of a deal— uh, and not to say we want birds to fly into the turbines, but I've been around a lot of wind turbines, and I've never seen a bird fly into a wind turbine. I've never seen dead birds on the ground. These things just probably happen from time to time. But, uh, you know, I think the, the hardest part to deal with is when people just say they're ugly and they don't like them. So, And, you know, I can understand that. I'm a preservationist. I'm a historic historical kind of guy. I like to see, look out over the landscape and see that it looks the way it did when I was a kid. And that's hard for people sometimes when they see that change. But I always try to at least bridge over to the idea, if you see a row of wind turbines, there's some farmer or rancher that's doing better than he or she was 10 years ago because they have royalties coming in from these turbines. So it's just a matter of getting used to something. I don't think people liked the way pump jacks looked when they first went into the, to the uh, landscape as well. Uh, things change and times change. And so it's not as if everywhere you look, there's going to be wind turbines. It's just there again, it's just people are looking kind of uh, with blinders on, I think. I've, I've read that landowners can earn as much as $6,000 a year for each turbine on their land. There is some really big money flowing into this for sure. You know, we've got some farmers down in Hale County near Plainview that asked for it. They, they spent 10 years trying to get 
wind development onto their land. And even those, they were in a pool, so even folks that didn't get a turbine on their land are actually getting a cut of it. Uh, so there's a lot of different ways this happens. It's, it's like royalties for, uh, for oil and gas. It's just a, it's a great resource for, for uh, dry land farming. If you think about we can't irrigate like we used to. There's got to be something else filling in that, that value gap, and, and uh, renewable energy definitely can play that role. Another criticism is what happens to the old blades, which generally are built for 20 to 25 years of active service. Now, Wes, I'm sure you've seen that big pile of old blades near Vega, Texas, right along I-40. These often wind up in our landfills. And while no one ever said that wind energy was perfect, um, it's visible artifacts like this that engender public outcry. Contrary to popular belief, they actually can be recycled, but at least for now, it's not economical. If wind farm operators continue to replace their blades every 20 to 25 years, it means that by 2050, which seems to get tossed around also a lot yeah. as, a, as a benchmark year, there will be 2.2 million tons of them in our landfills nationwide. But for the sake of comparison, the U.S. landfilled 27 million tons of plastic in 2018 alone. How do you combat misinformation or at best incomplete information you know i think you did it the best i mean and going back to the bird kills and things like that there's a you can take a number and it sounds like whoa that's crazy but when you consider it in the the greater uh the, the truth that's greater than just that little sliver of information you realize it's all relative uh and there are new recycling techniques for these blades uh, I guess it's it's a testament to how they build these blades because they have to be so strong. It's not that they're re, they're non-recyclable. It just takes a lot more effort to break them up. Uh, but I always remind people, hey, we're we're Americans. We figure things out. So it's not as if those are going to be just sitting in the landfill forever. We'll probably find a way to make use of them. Uh, but in, in the meantime, the the benefit from what we're getting from wind energy so outweighs. Uh, any of this impact that we're talking about. Everything has to have a trade-off, uh, and we're talking about the benefits that far, far uh, outweigh uh, a few you know, turbine blades sitting by the side of the road until we figure out what to do with them. So what does all this mean for coal and natural gas, or as I saw someone on social media refer to it today, fossil gas? <laughs> so definitely, so... If you look at our fuel mix for this area, we are coal, natural gas, and wind energy primarily. Uh, over the years, the coal part of that pie has been shrinking. Uh, not so much because of uh, the fact that it's, it's not environmentally friendly. In fact, uh, for us, we're, it uses a lot of water for these big coal plants. And uh, we're having to prematurely or, uh, retire one of our plants near uh, Muleshoe, the Tolk power plant, just because we're running out of water. We have to use a lot of groundwater for the cooling purposes because uh, these are steam units. Uh, so so that, that part is, is shrinking. Now, natural gas, uh, we've always viewed that as what you sometimes hear as a bridge technology. So it's not a perfect carbon-free technology, but it's, it's a lot, lot less so than, than coal, a lot less impact. So uh, we are using natural gas to get where we need to go. Uh, and we can, we can burn natural gas so much more efficiently than we could, say, 10, 20 years ago. So those, those, those fuels will always be, not always be in the mix, but for the next decade or so, you'll still see those in the mix. And they're important. Plus, the uh, coal and natural gas enable us to dispatch the power plants. We can turn them on and off, whereas we still can't do that with wind energy. So we need something that we can balance the wind with. How many more turbines can we expect to see in our area going forward and what will the effect be on our bills? Uh, will our power bill go down, go up, or stay the same? You know, one interesting thing about the two new wind farms that we, uh, Excel Energy built and now owns, uh, one is in uh, Roosevelt County, New Mexico, near Portales. The other is in uh, Hale County. Those particular plants, uh, the, the, the capital cost was 800 to $900 million. So you're looking at every year there's a certain amount of cost that we, we have to charge our customers. Uh, to pay for that, essentially. It's like a mortgage. I mean, you buy a house, you're going to pay for it for 30 or 40 years, 30 years, not 40 years, hopefully on a house. But uh, the cost 
uh, the annual cost to service that debt and to operate those plants is actually less than the savings we're generating in fuel costs. And so, uh, and this, you could go look in our rate filings and you'll see this. Th they're saving on fuel costs because we're not using coal and natural gas, it's free fuel. So the savings outstrips the actual cost of them. So that's another long answer to your short question. Basically, they're saving customers money. And uh, yes, there are uh, federal uh, tax credits related to that. And so some people use the word subsidies. There are subsidies all over the place with energy. Uh, oil, gas, every type of energy has some sort of government support. That's the way the government has supported wind energy. And those, those tax credits actually come back to you as a customer, the way we designed these uh, these new power plants, they're coming back in savings for you. So you're getting 100% of that tax credit back uh, as, a, as a customer of XL Energy in Texas and New Mexico. So, so it saves money. Now I forgot what the rest of the question was because I went off on saving money. So <laughs> I was just wondering how many we could expect how to many see. Expect, <laughs> you know, I think it's hard to say. Uh, I know we're always looking for good deals, and we're always telling people we're going to do something that's reasonable. We're not going to just go out there and do it for the sake of doing it. It has to be it has to be reliable, it has to be affordable, uh, it has to uh, fill a, a gap or a niche that we need to have filled. And as we, as, as we move toward that 2030 date, and we know we're gonna, we're wanna hit that 80% carbon free, we will definitely see more renewables, whether it's wind and or solar. After the break, we'll take a look at one of Wes's fave subjects, Amarillo history. The MBA is the most popular graduate degree in the United States and with good reason. It leads to better jobs, promotions, and salary increases. At the Paul and Virginia Engler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, our MBA program is entirely online for when you're ready to make that move. With as few as 31 credit hours and specializations offered in five areas, you can fast track your career in as little as 18 months. Whether you're looking for a promotion or initial job placement, you'll stand head and shoulders above the competition. And because we've been teaching online since 1997, we're not the new kids on the block. Trust your education and career to dedicated faculty who are not only experts in their fields, but also old pros in the online arena. Our consistently high rankings say it all. A GMAT waiver is available. We're AA CSB accredited and among the most elite of business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with a WT MBA in hand. For more information, find us at wtamu.edu slash cob or call 806-651-2500. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we're here to help you reach those stars. I've heard it said before, blessed is the person who has a hobby, for they live in two worlds. In the 25 years I have known you since we served on the board of Center City Amarillo, I've known you to be a historian and a preservationist. How did this come about? You know, that's a really good question. So I, I, I just know, I've been asked this before, my mom and dad uh, always loved stories and they liked to talk about things that happened in the past. And we would spend a lot of time driving around. My dad liked to drive in the countryside and he would show me things old broken down places that, that were interesting to him. So I guess it came by me, but came to me naturally through my parents. But I grew up in a little town uh, where people talked a lot about history. They talked about th the way things were, right? Especially if you're in a kind of a, a town where everybody's older. Uh, I just heard a lot of stories. And so I became really interested in the physical uh, remains of, of the past as, as kind of living testaments to what I was hearing in the stories. And I was always kind of disheartened when I'd see people just scrape something and tear it down. It's like, well, yeah, the stories are in our head, but you had the stories that you could touch too. Uh, so I've always become interested. And so we had a movie theater in my hometown uh, that had begun to fall in. I was already an adult and had lived away from home, but I started talking to some of the locals about, we gotta find a way to save the, the old theater. And it's a long story I can't get into here, but we saved it uh, essentially with a lot of help. And I think that's where I really got moving in a more organized way of how do you preserve history and, and network with all the people who are interested in it and get something done. And what is it about Amarillo history that piqued your curiosity? Well, when I moved here 30 years ago, a little bit more than 30 years ago, uh, 
I didn't know a lot about Amarillo, even though I had grown up in the region. Amarillo was just a place we went to go to the mall and go to the doctor. Uh, actually living here, I, I, and I worked for the Globe News, by the way, too. So I, I had this opportunity to meet people all over town and to go uh, in my car and see places. And it just uh, opened my eyes to the fact that Amarillo was a very unique and different town. And I moved from Austin, Texas, right? So who moves from Austin to Amarillo? But I really was happy about it and uh, because I got to know this city that it was, I guess what I'm saying is it was not what I expected once I began to look at it. Plus, anywhere I live, I'm going to want to know the history and I'm going to want to appreciate the history. And so I've been here 30 years. So I've had 30 years to ask a lot of questions. Amarillo has only existed as a city since 1887, thanks to the coming of the Fort Worth and Denver City Railroad. And not long after that, the Pecos Valley and Northeastern came through town, as did the Cheyenne, Oklahoma, and Western. We had a triple intersection of rails in what is now downtown Amarillo. So um, it was no surprise then that a settlement and later a town emerged but then again, did those early settlers not take the weather into consideration? This is a rough place to be able to hang onto your hat. <laughs> you know, I still laugh about the immigrant trains. I guess that's what they called them. They would bring uh, folks from the upper Midwest down uh, the Santa Fe Railroad. Uh, a lot of these folks were, English was not their first language. So I always wonder if they were just giving them bad translations or what. Because, I, you know, they told them that, and sometimes the weather is great here, you know, and just like, I think yesterday was beautiful. So we, we've learned how to kind of just, we've developed this amnesia, you know, as a culture here. It's like, well, we won't remember that. We won't remember Saturday or Friday, which were so bad here. Uh, so I, I just think it's, uh, I, let's put it this way. The pretty days are just so beautiful that they're worth it, as the way I look at it. I have read that the original name of Amarillo was Ragtown. How did this happen, and and then what's the story behind the current name Amarillo? Well, as I understand, Ragtown uh, came from a tent city uh, that that sprang up as the railroad was being built through here. So basically, the area around Wild Horse Lake was a camp uh, for the railroad construction workers, and I guess they named it Ragtown because all it was was tents. So. Uh, but Amarillo, you'll read a lot of different things. Where did Amarillo come from? Obviously, it's the Spanish word for yellow. Some people say, well, everything's just kind of yellow around here, you know, especially in the wintertime. There is an Amarillo Creek. Uh, there is also talk about certain wildflowers that do bloom, and perhaps uh, they're mostly yellow, and maybe that's where it came from. But it's really hard to say exactly where that name came from. I love looking at photos of early Amarillo, yet... It seems like so many of the glorious old buildings are gone. Uh, while we have a few stately survivors from the past, like the Barfield, the Fisk, the Santa Fe, and Amarillo buildings, along with the Herring Hotel, it seems like we've done a better job at tearing down rather than preserving. Why is this so? You know, I always remind folks that Amarillo is just a, a Texas city, right? So uh, if you look anywhere in Texas you will see the same patterns of development. And uh, as downtown became sort of congested and the suburbs began to spread out, downtowns began to try to compete with the suburbs by saying, well, look, we've got big parking lots too. And so uh, it's just really a matter of economics. I don't think it was some sort of big conspiracy to say, let's just tear everything down. It just sort of happened that way. And we've never had uh, the appreciation we need perhaps for these older structures. Now, I think that's changing and it's getting better. In the 30 years I've lived here, there is definitely more of a feeling of let's try to preserve something, even though we still tear stuff down a lot. But, you know, now it's stuff that was built 50 years ago that a lot of people don't see as interesting. And I do, uh, you know, mid-century modern buildings that are going under the wrecking ball now. So it's just a matter, I think, of appreciating and understanding the past and the, the context in which those buildings were built. It costs a lot of money to renovate a historic building. But is it more expensive than building a new one, or do we just not like to look at abandoned old buildings? I think it seems to be more expensive. I think when you really look at it, it's it's much easier to, to redevelop, say, a downtown when you have existing buildings. If you notice, as things have begun to turn around, uh, the, the first development happened in existing buildings. There's only been a few new buildings built downtown uh, since we, you and I were working on this 25 years ago, most of the development's been in existing buildings. Uh, it's just a little more complicated going about doing it. 
but you can ask any of the folks who have built new buildings and you're building into what I call a brownfield. It's, it's something's been there before. You don't know what's underneath the ground. If you're trying to build a new building, you might have to scoop all the dirt out and fill in some old ancient basement that's there. So you've got to be very careful about trying to build new, not that it's not possible, but it's just so much easier to take an existing building. They were built to last a lot longer than, than they have. Well, you can see that today with the bar field. Exactly. That yeah. was a, a gutted out hulk of a building for pretty much my first 30 years oh, yeah. here. And now it's a it's a shiny new posh hotel. And when you see what they had when they stripped it down to the bare walls, it looked, it looked brand new. So uh, basically you've got a brand new construction hiding underneath all of these older buildings. You just got to tear away what has been destroyed by the elements or vandals and rebuild it. Uh, it, it's I know it's it's easier said than done, but it's very much possible. We've seen it done all over the country. What are your thoughts on the current push to revitalize downtown Amarillo? There are naysayers, to be sure, people who like their suburban existence and can't be bothered with driving 10 minutes to the historic part of town. <laughs> you know, I really see it as a, a, a matter of survival, though. You look at any city, we're competing with other cities. We're competing for workers. Uh, workers, the workforce of the future starts with younger people. So you've got you've to have something for younger people. And I say younger, we're talking about anywhere from 20 to 40 in that range. Younger than me, actually. Nearly everybody's younger than me now. But uh, it's, it's just so important to, to have the, the draw. And, you know, we, we've done this with the baseball stadium and the various things there. Uh, I just was in Austin this weekend. And so it's full of young people, and it's almost too full of young people. It's too full of people in general. Uh, but we need to be able to take some of that, some of that excitement that we're seeing in other cities and bring it into our downtowns and our older, older neighborhoods. And that's what these folks are looking for. What should we be doing next? Is there hope for the Herring? I love that building. I've been able to wander through it oh, at least four times and go on extended photographic missions. Mm -hmm. I've, I've seen pretty much every square inch of that place. And what about other historic buildings? Uh, do you think people also might like to live downtown someday? We're, we're seeing that already. You know, the building I used to work in uh, is the, considered the, uh, called now the uh, First Bank Southwest Tower actually has uh, condo units there. You can actually live in that building now. So that's the tallest building in Amarillo and it's not the oldest one. Uh, there are some housing opportunities downtown. What we really need to see uh, moving forward, though, is affordable, uh, accessible type row houses or something like that for a lot of the young folks to come into. Amarillo has a housing shortage right now, so I can't say this enough. We have a lot of developers. Let's all look downtown. You know, we've developed all around the fringes of town. There is so much available land and opportunity downtown, and, and there are definitely people who would want to live there if it didn't cost too much. So we've got a lot of opportunity with bringing people into the center part of town to live there and to shop there and to eat there. And that's what drives a vital downtown, is, is housing. We'll know when we have reached critical mass downtown when a supermarket oh my opens gosh, up yes, there. For sure. Like downtown Albuquerque now has a small supermarket because so many people live there. And, you know, I remember visiting Albuquerque, say, 25 years ago. Albuquerque downtown was dead. Uh, and it's yes, it's a bigger city than Amarillo, but they have done a great job, and we don't, we can be just like that. Uh, it may take us a little bit longer. I think we're well on the way, but uh, there are a lot of chicken and egg situations because if you put a grocery store in now, that would definitely help draw people, but the grocery store itself probably wouldn't make it. So, so we've got to kind of just do this a little bit at a time. Your new corporate headquarters are right across the street from Hodgetown, home to the Amarillo Sod Poodles. What role does minor league baseball play in the downtown revitalization? Well, there's a lot of, of great benefits. You know, I, one of them I always talk about is just the awareness it brings. So you're bringing people into downtown who normally wouldn't come downtown, and they have a great time, and they see something that doesn't look like Amarillo to them. This looks like somewhere else, a bigger city. And they begin to have these positive vibes, these positive attitudes about downtown. So there's the awareness the publicity aspect of it, but you're also seeing real economic development. When people are coming in from other towns, I grew up in Wellington, Texas. I know people who have come to Amarillo, spent the night in the hotels, and gone to the baseball games, just like the, the developer said would happen. 
you know, and that's why we had these hotel taxes dedicated toward the uh, development of the ballpark, which, by the way, never raised anybody's property taxes. It's all being paid for by people coming in from the outside and all of us who are buying tickets and whatnot. But uh, it's it's just there's so many benefits. I can't even list them all here. It's been a it's been a fantastic development for Amarillo. And it's a lot of fun to go to because it's a hitter's park. Yeah. Uh, if the wind is blowing like it normally does, you're going to see people <laughs> popping that ball over the wall quite a few times. We like to hang out on the, the $5 berm seats out there. I don't know if that's what they're called or not. but The lawn. Uh, the lawn, yeah. It's kind of it's, it's just a ton of fun, and I usually go with people who have kids, and you can just let them run out there. It's, a, it's, a, it's just something we've needed for so long. I, I will agree with you. It is a ton of fun to go to the game it there is. because there is not a bad seat or standing location in the whole place. And even if you don't like baseball, you're going to have fun. Yeah. For sure. And every once in a while you'll see somebody hit one out of the park like last week when <laughs> with a little bit of wind assistance it went 584 oh, wow. feet. Yeah, if you hang out on that street, which I believe is Johnson or I believe it's Johnson Street, you might you might be able to get you a ball. <laughs> In the 1950s, Amarillo began its inexorable growth toward the south and west, right into the prevailing wind. Some have said that towns tend to develop in that general direction. Anyway, it started with Sunset Center, the first enclosed mall in the city, followed by Western Plaza and then Westgate Mall. Today, nearly all commerce is conducted far from downtown. Is there any hope for regaining some of that business downtown or... Will it just be a mix of hotels, restaurants, and bars in the future? You know, there again, I think <clears throat> if we can go back to housing, if you have people living there, there's going to be a certain amount of needs they're going to have in that area. And then you look at the neighborhoods around downtown. So I live on South Harrison Street, just south of downtown. And I would d definitely go to stores if they were there because they'd be closer to me. So I think it's a matter of just rethinking a lot of that. Uh, but plus, in, you, in the middle of all this, you have the retail apocalypse, you know, so you, you begin to wonder if the mall or any of these places are really going to make it. But I think that they're definitely with these younger generations, there's a desire for locally grown, locally produced, uh, small mom and pop type businesses. And I think that's where downtown could really play a role if we don't tear everything down. So I always tell people, leave the buildings. We can develop these into smaller shops. Uh, so we've got to be very careful that it, we don't out overprice or outprice the folks that would come in and do this. Because so right now, the, the retail footage, the square footage, what little we have downtown is quite expensive. So we need to be very careful of that. Are you able to walk to work? I can. Yeah, I don't, but I have done it. Uh, it's about a 15-minute walk. Uh, I need to get my bike out. That's what I need to do. But I'm pretty close, really. How would you describe the current ethos of downtown Amarillo and what makes you and others and people like me want to go there when we could more easily just go to a chain restaurant along the main arterials? You know, I think it's uh, it's a feeling like you belong somewhere. So if I'm going to, I mean, I don't want to trash any of the chain restaurants, Olive Garden, whatever, but you're going to have the same experience there as you would in Plano or somewhere else. It's all the same. If you want to feel like you belong. Uh, this is my town. I, I know these people. I'm going to meet people I know. That's when you want to go downtown or go to 6th Street. I always leave 6th Street out, but there are a ton of fun down there, the coffee shops and restaurants. You just go to places where there's locally owned businesses, and that's where you're going to find them uh, is downtown and along uh, in San Jacinto. When we come back, we'll broaden our scope and look at the entire Texas panhandle. There's a reason why our programs are rated so highly by independent reviewers. We are committed to continuously improving what we do. Whether it is in the classroom or online, the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business strives to stay ahead of the curve, not behind it. Join us in the classroom or online and see the difference. We're WCSB accredited and among the most elite business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with a WT business degree in hand. For more info, find us online at wtamu.edu slash cob or call 806-651-2525. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we are here to help you reach for those stars. Wes, you're a native of Wellington, Texas, a small city in the southeast part of the Panhandle. And for our listeners who may not know, the Panhandle is 
technically only the top 26 counties of the state. It does not include Lubbock or Midland, not even Plainview. It's just the first five rows of county, four fives and one six. In the 33 years that I have been here, the combined populations of those 26 counties have only grown by about 10%, which is a fraction of a percent each year. Why is this? You know, if you look at the, the rural nature of so many, so just my hometown, for instance, uh, it, the economies are based on agriculture, primarily ranching and farming. And uh, a lot of headwinds, uh, you know, these, these towns have faced a lot of headwinds with the global economy, uh, with uh, automation of certain jobs. It doesn't take as many people. So uh, there are some landowners now in my home county that own, you know, control multiple, multiple sections of land, uh, and they, they're sort of like their own little small corporate operation, but they only need so many people. Most of what's done is done through mechanized equipment. So uh, that has reduced the, the need for a lot of people. Uh, but then at the same time, it, you have younger people wanting something different, and they're just, they're exporting their younger population too much. Until these towns can find a way to stem that flow uh, it's going to be very difficult to get the growth patterns back. Amarillo is one of the few panhandle cities to grow, starting at about 157,000 when I arrived here in 1989 to about 200,000 today. In some regards, it seems like we're just stealing sheep, if you will, gaining residents at the expense of the smaller outlying towns. Nearby Canyon has also grown, albeit very slowly, as have Hereford Dumas and Dalhart, but that's it. And yet it seems like our main export, as you mentioned, has become, in addition to the wind, our own talent as people migrate to Dallas, Austin, and other large metro areas. What is your prognosis for the entirety of the panhandle? Well, I'll kind of start here with Amarillo uh, in that I, and this is all anecdotal. I don't have any scientific information to back this up. I do sense that a lot of uh, younger people are beginning to take a second look at Amarillo as a place to stay. And I say that just in talking with my own daughter who's been living in Austin. Uh, she's so frustrated with Austin. It's such a great place. She said there's so many fun things to do, but I, she said I can't get there without a hassle. You know, everything's a hassle. So a lot of younger people are beginning to say, you know, Amarillo's not so bad. We could go anywhere we wanted to. We have friends there, and you can develop your own community here. So I think it's a matter of younger people I'm, I'm, I keep pinning every all my hopes on young people, right? If they come back and they establish their own communities here, uh, that's going to definitely help uh, the population of Amarillo, and I think they can help the population of some of the area towns. Now, what they're going to need in some of these smaller places, though, are things like health care, uh, where they don't have to drive 30 miles to get there. So that's a longer, longer-term problem. Uh, but, you know, I think, I think Amarillo is going to have to lead the way in many ways. We... Uh, the little towns are, are become so dependent upon us. And we have a, a relationship where we should depend on each other. But I think they're really looking for us to find answers to a lot of this. And that's why we need to, uh, you know, reach out and help these towns uh, with some of the things that we're learning. And, and maybe we can help them grow their population as well. I grew up in Chicago, so I'm, I'm used to major traffic and, you know, all the big city problems. And, and I tell my friends from other parts of the country now that uh, our definition of a traffic jam is whenever you have to sit through the same light twice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I go crazy, so for sure. And we see a little bit more than that, more of that. But after being, like I said, after being in Austin this weekend, Amarillo looked wide open when I came back. So, A few months ago, part of downtown Memphis, Texas, burned. And while the town was already hurting, this was a sucker punch. How does a small town like this try to recover? Do they rebuild or just bulldoze it and leave part of their historic square empty? You know, that, was, that hurt really bad because that's where my family kind of originated, is in Memphis, Texas, Hall County, even though I grew up over there in Wellington, which is nearby. Uh, so it, it's really tough to see that and the, the history just evaporate like that. Uh, I think there already was an effort, though. The sad part about those buildings burning, that's where some of the new businesses were. So some of the folks that are trying to rejuvenate the square had actually set up shop there. They have a beautiful courthouse in the middle of that square that has been 
part of the Texas Historical Commission courthouse restoration program for a number of years. They haven't raised all the money for it, but it is actually in the running for a restoration. So, you know, I'm always trying to be the optimist. When I saw that fire, I thought, you know what, maybe this will get people behind getting that courthouse restored. But you have to have that anchor, that, that it, same with Canyon, Texas. The, the courthouse is beautiful on the outside, but we need to get it restored on the inside. But look at what it's done to Canyon. The, the square is booming. Uh, so I think for Memphis, it's an opportunity, you know, definitely get beyond the sadness. It's definitely an opportunity to, and they're right on the main highway there. So there's, this, there's a lot of people coming through there. So I'm really hopeful for them, really. I like how Dumas has managed to thrive amid all of this. In many regards, it's just another small panhandle town, but it gets a lot of pass-through traffic. And there are a lot of itinerant oil patch workers who keep the motels busy Heck, it's a town of 15,000 that can support its own brewery. What lessons can other panhandle towns learn from Dumas? Definitely take advantage of the traffic that's coming through your town. Uh, they, they have the advantage of that traffic's running right through the middle of town. Uh, but, you know, Dumas has kept the, the appearance of their town up, too. So when you think about it, you're driving through, uh, it's 287 and 87, right? Uh, or 87 splits, I think, there. But uh, it looks good. It looks progressive. It looks like a good place to stop. You have to be aware of image. And we're always telling people this in Amarillo. Uh, that's why image is so important. Um, there's a lot of places for people to stop. But I think Dumas has done a great job. They advertise it all, all, all along the road. You know, hey, wait till you get to Dumas and then spend the night with us. Uh, I think it's been a matter of cooperation uh, w amongst all the players there. But I, I think they've done a great job. Now, we'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens if this I-27 extension goes what it will do to a place like Dumas. I was just thinking that the other day because they'll probably would reroute some of that traffic out, but, uh, but definitely taking advantage of where they are in their, their geography. Since you grew up here, and, and I did not, I'm just a transplant, your experience trumps mine by a long shot. How do you describe the panhandle spirit, the pluck that kept people going when faced with a dust bowl, relentless wind, and isolation. And can we maybe bottle that and sell it? <laughs> you know, there's, there's a strange optimism here. I mean, it's like, I don't know, I can't quite describe it. Growing up in a little cotton town like Wellington, uh, it was a kind of a pessimism and optimism all at the same time. You know, you get a good cotton crop growing, and you always kind of thought, well... That might not make it. There might be a hailstorm come along. So you, people are very realistic here. Maybe that's what it is. But they're always perpetually hoping that next year's weather is going to be good. This year it's terrible, but next year will be good. You know, we've seen it in the past. Uh, so I think there's an optimism. I think there's a feeling of freedom still in this part of the world uh, because, uh, you know, my, my family, those of our, our families that have been here for multiple generations, they came here looking for something that they couldn't find wherever they were. And I think they instilled that in their descendants and passed that along. So, uh, you know, it's, it's wide open. And I think the, the openness of the landscape maybe plays on our brains somehow, that our, our opportunities are wide open. Uh, I know Amarillo uses that as their motto, right? It's endless opportunities or something I can't remember. Uh, but I see it that way, just this openness. I've heard it said that all of the Great Plains should be allowed to return to just bison habitat. After all, we're facing a long-term drought. The Ogallala Aquifer is running perilously low, and we continue to try to ranch and farm out here in spite of that serious limitation. To paraphrase an off-sided quote, about the only thing separating us from North Dakota is a barbed wire fence, and you know, just like me, sometimes they let that down. Uh, it's a big, wide-open nothing, an area I think that is actually better photographed in black and white. And yet I find it beautiful in its own way because there can be beauty and simplicity. What's your take on the words of sociologists who would rather see us abandon the place entirely? Well, you know, realistically, if you, if you tell someone you shouldn't go there, they're going to go there. So it's, it's not even real to say that some, that would be abandoned. Now, I think we need to understand where we came from and the habitat that was here uh, when settlers came out here uh, and the way the previous people who occupied this land uh, understood it and, and interacted with it. So 
we probably need to get back a little more to the basics of, of living with the land rather than trying to force ourselves on it. So there's some truth to that, but I don't think it's ever going to be abandoned. Uh, I think it's a beautiful place. And, and as I said, if you tell people you shouldn't go there, then what are you going to do? You're going to go there because somebody told me I shouldn't do it. Uh, so uh, I think it's just a matter of understanding, better understanding what we are Hey, and when the wind blows, we may not like it, but that's who we are. The wind's going to blow here. This is the part of the world where the wind blows, and it has some constructive uh, qualities to it. So uh, just just enjoying and, and embracing who we are, I think. I think Larry McMurtry uh, captured the essence of panhandle living in his book and then the later screen ab- adaptation, HUD. It could have been filmed in color, but it was filmed in black and white, and I thought that movie did so much justice to the area. It really did. You know, it, I, I, we just watched that not long ago, and it's it's just who we are. And I thought, uh, you know, Paul Newman, I love Paul Newman. Who didn't love Paul Newman? But, you know, my dad and mom were in college during that time, a little, little side story. And uh, my dad said Paul Newman actually visited here at West Texas at that time State College to watch how the cowboys that walked through the, the student union, how they walked and talked. And I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what my dad said. I thought they really were going for realism there. And it's not stupid. It's it's a wonderful movie and a great book, too. You recently shared something on social media about Amarillo being regarded as one of the top three desert towns to visit. Of course, we're not really a desert. Well, you know, at least not yet. (laughs) There's a clinical definition for desert, and it centers on there being less than 10 inches of average annual moisture. We only hit that mark once every 10 years or so, uh, and we might very well hit it this year, (laughs) the way we're going. But you said something profound, Wes, and I quote, I say we're at our best when we're being us. That doesn't mean we settle for mediocrity and resist change. It just means we're confident in who we are. Care to elaborate on this a bit? You know, it's funny. I had to stop and think about what I was thinking when I wrote that, but... uh, I've always been a person that wants to see things get better, but then what does better mean? You know, do we want to look like Dallas? Do we want to look like Fort Worth? And, and I don't believe we want to, we want to be us. And uh, we have to be very careful there. And and at the same time, there are always been naysayers on everything. They'll say, well, we're not Dallas and we're not Fort Worth. And I'm like, yes, I know, but we want to be a little bit more like them. We just don't want to be them. So it's, it's finding that common ground between, uh, where you are progressing and you're 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 bringing people into your historic downtowns, but you're also still Amarillo. And I think it's possible. And I think it, a lot of the people who have been opposed to everything are just scared of change. It's like we can still change and still be us. So where does the panhandle, and specifically Amarillo, go from here? After all, you and your company have your finger on the pulse of the entire economy. Without you, we don't have electricity. We may curse you when the lines fall down and it's hard to get alignment up a pole in 60-mile-an-hour winds or, uh, or a squirrel causes an outage, but the fact remains we need you. You are also in a position to see into the future because you know how and where the city and the region is growing, which companies might be interested in relocating or expanding here and the ebb and flow of residents. Wes, take a peek into the crystal ball and... Take us to 2030 and the next census. How big do you think Amarillo will be then? And what about the whole panhandle? You know, so we're talking about eight years off. So um, it's hard to say. We're, we're topping, I think Amarillo topped 200,000 in the last census. Uh, if you look at Lubbock, Lubbock's growth has been pretty, I think, bigger. I don't know where they landed out, but they're 250, 260,000 people. We could easily be 250,000 people. Uh, but we've got to do a few things. We have to be willing to vote for school bonds. We have to be willing when there's an, an issue comes up and said we need to build new schools or we need new facilities. We have to be willing to do that. We have to be willing uh, to vote a few tax increases here. And I'm not
You've been listening to Buff Speak from the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. Our executive producer is Justin Lovell, and Allison Hunter is our associate producer. Our co-editors are Maverick Evans and Paul Torres. Lindsay Bjork is our director of marketing and outreach initiatives, which includes overseeing Buff Speak. Dr. Jeffrey Babb is director of accreditation and is our technical consultant. Finally, Dr. Amjad Abdullah is Dean of the College. To help make that you can find us online at wtamu.edu slash COB for more information about our programs. Be sure to check out our many academic offerings. Come for the quality, stay for the small classes, affordable tuition, and friendly approachable professors. And look online at our faculty blog, profspeak.com, for more insights. You can listen to BuffSpeak on your favorite podcast portal, as well as on our website, buffspeak.biz. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't be afraid to share us with your friends, colleagues, and family. Word of mouth has always been the best form of advertising. Until next time, love one another. For the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, I am Dr. Nick Gerlich. And as always, go Buffs. Uh, they were all boosters of the community. My great grandfather down in Memphis uh, was the chamber of commerce Buff guy. Speak. So he he was the cheerleader for for the town, and that was before World World War One. So I feel like I owe it to him. Uh, so I think just uh, playing, you don't have to be in charge of everything. I've also also learned you don't have to be on every board. <laughs> you and I did board service together. Just being a positive voice in the community and helping where you can, I think, is what I'm going to try to do from now on. Our guest today has been Wes Reeves. Social media relate... No, cut. Social media. Something. Our guest today has been Wes Reeves, Senior Media Relations Representative at XL Energy Amarillo. Give us your best shot, Wes. Okay, so I have to quote somebody else. Uh, Rene Descartes if I'm saying his name right. If you would be a real seeker after truth, it is necessary that at least once in your life you doubt as far as possible all things. And that's something that's meaningful to me. Always question what you see.